an Englishman in San Diego at Lawless Comic Con 2023. Stacy Dutton Whittle in conversation with Dave Gibbons. you're in this room because you're familiar with my work. Um, I've done an autobiography, an anecdotal autobiography, which is called Confabulation. Confabulation is the thing that happens when you tell stories repeatedly and you actually lose what originally happened, but it turns into a much more elegant and satisfying story. So I was very aware that these reminiscences that I've got about my career are anecdotes that I've honed and, and moulded over the years to be good little stories. And actually, most of them, I can remember them off by heart. I thought it'd be nice if there was a manual that had all my little stories in it. My wife particularly appreciated it, because then I wouldn't have to retell the anecdotes. <laughs> I'd just show people the book and say, read that, you know, if they're asking me a question. Um, and so it is non-alphabetical. I just wrote down a list of topics and wrote little essays about them and just put them in the book um, alphabetically. Um, and it's a 300-page book, and I think there's about... 300 illustrations in it. I've gone for things that people won't be familiar with. There's a bit of Watchmen, obviously. There's a bit of Dan there. But there's lots of stuff that I did, say, for advertising campaigns or for things that were on the radio, all sorts of obscure obscure bits of artwork that hopefully people who buy the book are interested in my work, but they may not have seen the full range of my uh, my talents, such as they are. I am not selling it. I don't like to handle filthy money. I, I, I don't believe it's a good thing to do. Um, so I'm afraid I don't have any copies on sale. I would imagine if they got any sense, somebody's got copies for sale out there. But anyway, you can buy at your local comic book store, or if you must, you can order it off the internet. It's a fairly expensive book. I think it comes in about 35 quid or something like that. But it's hefty. It's hefty. These, these are the two comments I've had. People have gone, it's really big, isn't it? And, say, and, it, and it's really colourful. So, you know, that's two pluses. As for what they make of the content, I don't know. But I've tried to make it, as you can tell, I'm the sort of bloke who once I get talking, I just go on and on and on. And people have said to me that it's like being down the pub with me when I embark on one of my anecdotes. And it's very much in my voice rather than in a sort of a high-flown, magisterial voice. Um, and... I was quite worried with it that I was going to upset people because I like to get on with people. But inevitably, if you're going to do an autobiography, you've got to tell the truth. There's no point in doing it otherwise because it isn't what, what happened. Um, and I was really worried that I might upset people or offend people. But when I read it through, I actually, the person who comes off the worst is me. <laughs> because it's full of examples of me being a prima donna or me screwing something up or me on the road to help that was paid with good intentions. So I don't think I've upset anybody. I haven't had any comments back that are other than glowingly positive. So I guess I got away with it. Definitely. And is there a reason you've 
interesting you chose to do it in a non-linear fashion rather than yeah, well, I mean, in the back of the book, thanks to the efforts of my editor, Tim Pilcher, who can't be with us today, but Tim's had some great input into this book, and he's got an editorial background, and he's, he's corrected lots of things that I went a bit astray on, and he's also very good on the mundane bits of publishing, like indexing and bibliographies. So although it is in <clears throat> just a random alphabetical order, there's a complete um, bibliography <coughs> at the back, and I'm astonished at how many things I've done over the years. It goes right back to 1973, so that's 50, 50 years ago. Uh, and um, um, he, he also um, did the index as well, because of course what all us artists do, if there's a book out about comics, we immediately turn to the index to see if we get mentioned in it, <laughs> which, is, which is what I suspect most of my pals have done, and I've just read the bit that's about them, because we're all egomaniacs, really. Um, so yeah, I just thought it'd be a more interesting read, and it's so predictable. It's going, you know, I was born at an early age, and then I went to school, and then I went to big school, and then I went to, you know, you know. So it's just the interesting bits. And of course, being a comic book artist, most of the time, it's quite an uninteresting thing for for the observer because you're just sat in a room with a pencil in your hand drawing. So it's like, there's a lot of convention experiences. Someone's at your front door. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, I thought it was a more interesting way to do it. And it, may, and it also makes it a book you can dip in and dip out of, you know. It's not like if you start reading a, a chronological book halfway through, you can't really do it, you've got to go back to the beginning. But with an alphabetical thing, you just dip in anywhere you like. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, you're getting asked book as well, how comics work, which I think you also did with Tim Pilcher. Yeah. Um, it seems like a shift with, from sharing fiction stories to sharing your knowledge now. Is that a purposeful shift? Um, yeah, I mean, I've discovered <coughs> discovered over the years, I mean, most of my life in comics has been spent drawing. I, I suspect because when you are trying to break into comics, an editor can look at a page of your artwork and can tell immediately whether you're up to it or not. But if you give them a story manuscript, they've got to read it and analyse it, and a lot of them haven't got time to do that. So I broke into comics on the strength of my artwork but I always harboured the dream to write comics as well. Because when I was growing up, I had no idea that there was a separate writer and a separate artist and a separate inker and colourist. And that. I thought one person did, did the whole thing. So I sort of cultivated all those skills at a very rudimentary level. But the only one I'd really developed was drawing. But then when Watchmen was so successful, my name magically got what they call the marquee effect, you know, like outside a movie house, if they put a certain person's name in the lights, then people think, well, this would be a good film, because I like the last film. So, because people had enjoyed Watchmen, the idea was that they'd probably pick up anything at that point that had my name on it. So, I got the opportunity to write Road Trooper and Superman and Batman, uh, and then I wrote an extended run of Green Lantern, and I really, really enjoyed that. It felt refreshing and new after doing so much drawing. Um, but now, I'm, I've actually... I really loved and enjoyed doing this autobiography because I, I, I am a storyteller and it's interesting to tell real life stories you know, rather than fictional stories. And um, like I say, Confabulation is 300 pages long, but even when I read the proof of it, I thought, I've missed some really good stories out of this. So what I'm actually working on at the moment is Confabulation Part 2, or more Confabulation, whatever it's going to be called. And there's some great stories in there. So, yeah, I just really enjoy it. It feels like easy, because it's in my voice. It's just me. It's just like me talking, you know, so easy to do. Fantastic. And you've worked on so um, 
many sorry you've worked on so many properties is there one that escaped you always wished that you had worked on Oh yeah, there was one, you know, I eventually ended up working with Mark Miller on King, the Secret Service Kingsman. But long before that, I'd actually been offered one of his stories that I was too busy at the time to do. But it's one of my favourite Superman Elseworld stories. It's called Red Sun. And basically the idea is what would happen if Superman had come to work in Soviet Russia rather than in rural Kansas. Um, and it was great. And it's just, it's just the sort of thing I love. It's got all that Russian iconography. And that, to me, that is one of the ones that sort of got away. Wow, that's really interesting. And is there any other, like, property that you do? Because you've written for Batman and Is there any other character that you, you wished you'd got your hands on? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I have been lucky. Again, I come into this whole thing as a fan, you know, as a kid growing up, loving comics. And it's a bit like, I guess, if you're into football, you grow up dreaming that you might play for Manchester United or Arsenal or something one day. Or Newcastle, obviously. Yeah, that, I just, the word just slipped my mind. I was, I was going to focus exclusively on Newcastle. But, um, you know, it's like, oh, one day if I'm really good enough, I might get to play with Newcastle. Um, and so, going along the way, I found myself attracted to things that the fanboy in me loved. So I ended up working with Will Eisner on the Spirit with a great set of stories that Alan Moore wrote. Um, I worked on a reboot of Green Lantern with Stan Lee got to speak to Stanley in my kitchen and, but it's, it's in the book it's in, in confabulation the full story by the book, by the book. <laughs> so um, I, I got to work with him I got to work on Superman and Batman I, I worked with Doctor Strange Captain America um, and of course I got to work with fantastic talents like Alan Moore, Frank Miller um, Mike Mignola, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez so really in many ways it's, and I would say that what I've done is I've never chased the money, I've turned down some quite well paid things, because I'd rather do something that really gives me pleasure and that I really, really enjoy, so that's been my kind of guiding light, and over the 50 years, I think I probably have worked on every property and with every creator that I've ever really wanted to. Yeah, and I suppose with that, you've got to have some joy in what you're doing, don't you, so if, you, it's, a, if it's just a job, then yeah. you're not going to have the same no, I mean, that's the thing, as I say in my, in my book, in Confabulation, there's examples of my advertising work. And that actually, although it can be very well paid, I mean, they basically say, take, take your page rate, times it by five, and add a thousand to it, you know. Because the trick of advertising agencies is they get paid according to how much money they spend. So they're actually on the freelancer's side. They want you to charge as much money as they can possibly where my dory's been. <laughs> oh, exactly. If, if you if you want to make make the money, that's that's where to be. Um, so, what, what was the question again? I can't remember. <laughs> no, no, no. Right. Um, I do want to point. We do have a lot of 2000 AD um, fans in here, so I'll of course I've got to ask you about Doctor Who. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in the recent trailer for the new series, has everyone seen it? Um, was a familiar, who somebody might be familiar to you anyway, but definitely some beep the meat. Did you? Yeah. <coughs> Do you know anything? Well, it's, anything. <laughs> it's funny, until that trailer came out, I knew absolutely nothing. Really? And, I, and people would try and get me to talk about it, but I had a pretty hefty NDA, non-disclosure agreement in place, and I wouldn't have wanted to leak about it anyway, because it, I think it spoils things if I trailed too much in advance. 
But, but yeah, and Pat Mills and I, who um, Pat wrote and I drew a story called Star Beast for Doctor Who Weekly. Um, and they invited us down to Wales where they do a lot of the filming of Doctor Who. And we got to meet the Meep and we got to meet the, the intergalactic cops, you know, the big sort of lobster creatures as well. Um, and we got to see the Meep spaceship and we got to meet David Tennant as well, which was a huge thrill. And I found out as a bit of trivia, anybody who's a Doctor Who fan knows this, that, um, you know, I once drew Peter Davison as the Doctor. And Peter Davison is uh, David Tennant's father-in-law, which I suppose everybody knows, but I was gobsmacked because I was, <laughs> he, he was saying, so which doctors did, did, did you draw? And I said, oh, uh, I drew um, Peter Davison. I said, it was a bit difficult to draw after um, Tom Baker because he was a bit like a, bl a blancmange. He was a bit like a white blancmange. <laughs> he went, that's my father-in-law. <laughs> I said, obviously very good looking. <laughs> but but it, it, well, it was quite a challenge, but he was really nice to us because he let us go along. This is Peter Davison, I'm on there. He let us go along to the BBC where he was filming that week's e episode. And we got a photographer to do all the shots we needed with his head, you know, like full face, three quarter, looking up, looking down laughing, smiling, in terror. And it was really, really cooperative. And once he'd done that for us, we managed to get the light, the lightnesses dead on and his agent didn't stop us from doing it. He was going to do it one time. You made my client look ugly, so you can't use it. So we managed to get the doctor looking as he should. But it, yeah, it was just a bit of trivia that was unknown to me, that he's, he's the father in the current doctor. But it, it looks great. And I can't tell you what magic it is to see things that you've designed actually in the real world. And I think people will be blown away by it. You know, it's fa a fantastic adaptation. It looks absolutely brilliant. It must have been a bit of a, I mean, you, you've obviously known for some time, but it must be a bit shocked after like 43 years ago that you wrote that. For them to pull it out now is quite amazing. Well, I suppose but it's, it's like everything. So many people who find themselves in the creative industries grew up on comics. So, you know, they'd all grown up reading Doctor Who Weekly and Doctor Who Monthly. And it's like, I suppose it's, it was a tip of the hat to that and a registration of what we actually did with the Doctor. And although it was a long time ago, I think those Doctor Who stories were some of the best things that I ever did. And you, again, you can see the enjoyment of it because the Doctor was great because there's a bit of humour in it. You get something different to draw every episode because he's always hopping around in his police box. Um, so they were real happy days and it's great to know that the people who are now in charge of Doctor Who thought enough of it that they wanted to make it part of their special season. Oh, that's fantastic, isn't it? So you, um, you drew the 4th, 5th and the 12th Doctor, I think, is that right? Only very briefly the 12th one, yeah. Did you have a favourite to draw? Oh, Tom Baker easily was the one to draw because you could caricature him and he'd still look on the model, whereas the problem with the blancmange... There's <laughs> <laughs> not, it's not a lot of contrast or sharply defined volumes in it, but, but Tom with his big double chin, his curly hair and his wide eyes and his toothy grin and everything. It was a dream to draw. But the way I used to work it was I didn't have a lot of photographic reference of him. The main stuff that I relied on was some images that had been taken using just an ordinary camera directly from the TV screen by an artist called Martin Asbury who was drew Doctor Who way back before me and he bequeathed to me all the photos that he'd taken off the telly and they were really smudgy and horrible but there were enough decent ones that what I could do is sort of rough out the Doctor and then get a couple of photos that were bang on 
and put those in a projector, I'm giving all the secrets away yeah, now, yeah. and project those on the artwork and make sure that on every couple of pages I had a really good likeness and then people will accept the rest of it, even if it's a little bit off model, they still know that it's Tom Baker. Uh, it's a professional secret I've done. <laughs> Nobody's going to look back and go back and double check or anything. Oh, they are. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know these people like that. Do. <laughs> Well, it, it, it is a bit surreal, obviously. I mean, when we ended up on the set of the Watchmen movie in Vancouver, um, they timed my visit very carefully so that it was the day when they were all in costume. It was the scene at the comic where they're having the Crime Busters meeting, so they're all there. The comedian, Ozzy Mandis, you know, Rorschach, everybody's there. And I was ushered into the building where they were filming very quietly, and I looked through the store, and there were all the characters standing there comedian smoking his cigar, actually doing the scene, and um, Zack Snyder went, cut, and then he looked at me, and I went, <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was absolutely fantastic, and they, they were such nice people on the set, and then we got to look around the, the actual sets that they built, like the owl ship, which is really weird, because the owl ship was created by me, and lived inside my head till I put it on paper, and then from the paper, it came to be a real three-dimensional life-size object with me standing inside it. So it's a real kind of... It's meta. Yeah, it's a real meta thing going on. Um, so that, that was a great experience, and they looked after me really, really well. Flew my, flew my wife and I halfway around the planet. Invited us to the Hollywood premiere with the rest of the family, so it was, it was really good. And the thing is, I would point out, the film actually didn't make any money because Hollywood films, by and large, don't ever make any money because somehow they managed to spend every penny they've made and it never filters down. But what it did do was mean that, that we sold over a million, probably nearer to two million copies of the book, the trade paperback, which Alan and I shared the royalties on. And um, even when they showed the first trailer of Watchmen that, that was on with one of the Batman movies, we then sold as many copies of it in the following three months as we'd sold in the previous 25 years. So the film was just a tremendous, tremendous trailer for buy this comic book. So it worked out really well. Well, it was conceived as a comic, and I think it works best as a comic, because that, that's what... But from the very beginning, there was talk of um, doing a movie version of it. I remember Alan and I had a meeting with uh, Joel Silver, the Hollywood sort of action director, and he wanted to have um, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> but then he did also want to make a film of Sergeant Rock and have Arnold Schwarzenegger be Sergeant Rock as well. So it's weird the way Hollywood works. But um, yeah, we've spoken about it from, from the beginning. And I think it didn't need to have a movie in order to validate it. But I think the movie they made was probably about as good a movie as you could hope to make, given the nature of the original property. And I think it's not a perfect film. Some bits of it, I think, are quite sublime. The opening credit sequence, I think, is amazing. The stuff on Mars is amazing. Other other bits we not so much, but I think you know. Well, in fact, um, Zack Snyder said the reason that he did it was because if anybody was going to fuck it up, he wanted it to be him. <laughs> so, uh, but 
but he, you know, he made a fair old fist of it. So I was very happy with that. I was very happy with the um, HBO series as well, the TV series, which I think a lot of people expected to be exploitative crap, but it was actually very thoughtful, very clever. There were bits in it where I was thinking, and I think it was so far away from the original comic book that it was an extrapolation. It was like set in the world of Watchmen, but not attempting to be a Watchmen adaptation, if you see what I mean. Is it um, so? Working in comics, you're often working with characters and properties that other people have worked on. But that was that was yours. So was it strange to see other people? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't so keen on Before Watchmen or the Doomsday Clock stuff because, like, it doesn't need a sequel in a way if you do things like that with it. It's like if you tell a, a good joke and everybody laughs and you then explain why the joke is funny, it's got that sort of feeling to it that it's superfluous, you know. When, when you tell a story, you pick the bits that you want to convey to the reader and it's actually weakened if you fill in all the pre-story and everything like that. It's better just to let people guess or people imagine what it might have been like when the characters first came together. So, yeah, I wasn't so keen on those. I mean, some really good artists worked on them, and so they look quite pretty, but I wasn't behind those in the way that I was behind the movie or the TV series. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were quite prolific in 2018, right from the, the beginning. And you worked on a whole load of strips. Do you have a, a favourite or any nice memories of that time that you could share with us? I, would, I mean, 2000 AD was, was great. It came along at just the right time. I mean, there was like our kind of generation, by which I would include, you know, myself, Brian Bolland, Nick McMahon, Kevin O'Neill, load, loads of others. But we, we were like a little hardcore little boys club, if you like. And it was always thrilling to see what your chums had come up with that week. And they'd want to see what you did. And you'd have a feeling of your playing for the team and you didn't want to let them down by doing anything other than your best work. We used to meet socially as well, we used to go to conventions, mob handed, so it was, a, it was a lot of fun. It's like being in the comics version of the Beatles or something like that. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I really enjoyed working for 2018. I got to work on Dan Dare, who had been a favourite of mine from when I was a kid. It wasn't quite the Dan Dare that I'd hoped it would be, but that's fair enough. Um, and I got the chance to co-create Rogue Trooper who went on to be very popular but some of my favourite things and this was again why I like Doctor Who so much some of my favourite things were the future shocks and time twists the little one-off five or six page stories because you could get really creative with them and you, you knew that you weren't going to have to draw what you draw drawn there every week for the next five years you basically drew it made it as interesting as possible and then walked away from it and I've sold most of my original artwork over the years, but there's one um, 2018 job I've kept the artwork for, and that was um, a time twister story called Chrono Cops, oh, yeah. which was written by Alan Moore, and which we did in the style of an EC human comic. And it was this really involved thing with these two cops going backwards and forwards in time and encountering each other, but hiding from the earlier version because they couldn't know how it turned out latest, and it was this incredible time paradox thing. And um, I remember I had all these blank pictures where I was going to repeat panels from before, so I didn't get to read it till I pasted in all the other pictures. And it worked, it absolutely worked. So when it came to Watchmen, Alan remembers that job because it proved that I could draw anything that he asked me to draw. <laughs> so he was quite happy to ask me to draw almost impossible things in 
in, in Watchmen. And indeed, the way we did the episode where Dr. Manhattan is on Mars, that was the same thing, because there's a lot of going backwards and forwards in time there, um, that you have to integrate and make it all work without having like a paste-up job. So that particular story, the 2008 issue, was, was like a sort of seminal moment where we thought, yeah, you could do some really interesting things with this. So that's probably my all-time favourite. That's fantastic. Do you still get a lot of joy out of drawing? Do you still draw? To be honest with you, I draw very, very little these days. I mean, I've spent 50 years drawing. And I, 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 I don't know, it's, um, I do the odd commission here and there. The thing I really enjoy is uh, life drawing. Um, where I live, there's a, uh, um, what am I trying to say? There is a weekly life drawing class, which I'm not always able to attend, but I really love going along to that. And the thing that's nice about it is you're actually drawing just for the joy of drawing. You're not showing it to anybody. You're not trying to sell it to anybody. Nobody's telling you how you should draw it or what with or how big it should be. You just go along and draw. And I find that really very satisfying. And I find that if I do that, that inspires me to maybe do, do a bit of drawing because I'm reconnecting with the, the basic joy of it, you know. It's, it's funny, I've got this image from when I was a kid and I've spoken several times about my dad and my dad worked in the sort of town planning architecture area and he drew house plans and things. And I've got this picture of him at the dining room table with the main light off, with an angle poised light and a house plan that he was drawing with a cigarette burning in the ashtray and perfectly quiet. I was oh, that looks so good. That's one of the things that I loved about drawing was you go into this little world where you're in control of everything and you're detached from the world and then you come back into it. So I sort of get that from life drawing. But again, I think I've done so much commercial or imaginative drawing. I wouldn't say I've burned out, but I've kind of, I've discovered it's the act of drawing that I like rather than what I'm actually drawing, if that makes sense. Yeah, but it does sound like you've found, we found some joy in that. Yeah, yeah, and, and, I, and I do do a lot more writing these days, so, uh, yes. Well, it, you know, you shift, you change, don't you? Yeah, do you get, is it a different thing, writing? Is it, do you get a different something out of it? It's, it's all creative process, isn't it? But is it different? Oh, yeah, it is. <coughs> the thing about writing is you can express your ideas much more quickly than drawing, because it's the craft that takes the time with drawing a story. Whereas if you're writing it, um, there's not so much, there's, there's skill and there's talent, but there's not so much craft. It's not exactly how you type on the keyboard or anything like that. It's, you know, and also if you've got the right word, you've got the right word. Whereas with the drawing, that line could always be a little bit better. When I first started doing digital drawing, it, it was a disaster because you could draw it and think, that's almost there, undo. Oh, that's all that, yeah, that, so it's great that you can undo your mistakes, but it's actually a bit of a trap, whereas when I'm doing my life drawing with a big crayon and a bit of butcher's paper, you know, it's, who cares, oh, it's not screwed up anyway, you know, it's just a, what do they call it, a pentamenti, it's a, an apology, it's an excuse for putting the wrong line in, but I wax philosophical, sorry about that. Um, does someone know what time it is? Oh, I've gone over, I'm so sorry, anyone got any questions? You mentioned Kevin. Yeah. He passed away earlier this year. He did. Any anecdotes or memories of Kevin that you share? Yeah, I mean, I, I knew Kevin really quite well at one time. We, we've not been in touch so much in later years, and I sort of wish we had. But he had a great sense of humour, Kevin, a really wicked sense of humour, and great gossip that he, because he'd worked inside comics, you know, for the publishers. He had some great stories. 
there's, there's one story about Kevin O'Neill that, that isn't in my autobiography, um, but will probably be in it if I do a sequel or a part two. Uh, the, the DC Comics editor, Andy Helfer, woke up in the middle of the night one night having awful um, like fever dreams. He'd obviously eaten something that had upset his stomach. These terrible Kevin O'Neill, you know, horrific scenes of teeth and claws and everything. He, tr he tried to get back to sleep and all he could see was these terrible snapping jaws and things that Kevin had drawn. He thought, oh God, how can I stop thinking about that? I know, think Dave Gibbons. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was very upset about that actually. <laughs> said, oh yeah, you want to get off to sleep, have a look at some of Dave's work. So. And Kev laughed his head off at that bit. But, you know, he, was a, he was a great guy, a great loss. He did a lot for... Um, Creators' rights as well. It was him who introduced credits in 2000 AD, which made a huge difference. And yeah, he was definitely one of the guiding lights. And yeah, good friend. You're right at the back. Oh yeah, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of your Well, the thing about the originals is, just briefly, how that came about was Karen Burger, who's an editor at DC, she ran the Vertigo line. She said to me, Dave, when are you going to do something for me? When are you going to, you've written for other people, you've drawn for other people. Why don't you write and draw something for me? And I realised that to, to do that, I didn't just want to do another superhero or science fiction, I wanted to do something that had some meaning for me. And it's a long story to tell you why, but I did settle on mods. Because when I was growing up, I was a mod. I had the scooter, I had the clothes, I had hair. <laughs> Happy days. Um, and so I did something based on that. And it, and it was quite autobiographical, this whole sequences that actually happened or were very close to what actually happened. So I did that and it did quite well. And some people are very, very... A, a lot of people that haven't seen it, but the people who have generally seem to be very enthusiastic. And the thing was, when I was a mod, um, when I was at college, my holiday job my weekend job was working in an old folks home so I got to know these old boys quite well I was I was a, um, a kitchen porter and I was a storeman and then eventually I was an auxiliary on the wards and I used to have to give these old boys or some of them a bath so we had a bathhouse and so you go and fill the bath with warm water help them get undressed help them get in the bathtub get the flannel clean their backs for them give them the flannel and just sit back and read the paper let the good old soak for half an hour or something like that. But they quite often start talking, and they were of the generation that had been in World War One. And you think of, and, and they were probably about the age I am now, to be honest with you. But when you're young, you think, oh, they're just old people, they're just boring. But some of them would start talking, and they would suddenly be transported back to France, and they were chasing the girls and stealing the wine, and having a laugh, and trying not to get killed. And, you know, the whole thing came alive. There was something about it was in a bathhouse and it was sort of misty and it was sort of dreamlike anyway. That had a huge impact on me. So I thought, you know, the originals is about sort of the beginning of their lives, these characters. It would be really interesting to explore what happens at the other end of your life. So I've got this idea where they sort of end up in a residential home or something. But with still the same rivalries. And of course, I, I talked about this to Pat Mills, who we established is, is a fantastic writer. And I said, you know, I might write it one day. He said, Dave, now I've heard you talk about it. You will have to write it. It will haunt you until you write it. 
And every day I see something that I think, that's great. Like, I was in a shopping centre and I, the guy went past on a mobility scooter and I went, it's a scooter. He's an old boy, he's not a teenager, he's not a mod, but he's got a really smart scooter. So it's, it's all these kind of weird, weird echoes. And in the, in the old folks somewhere I worked, there was a murder, one of the old guys got charged with murder. It was some silly fight he'd had with a, with a fellow resident. And the guy had just fallen and banged his head on the table and was dead by the time he hit the floor. So we're going to be playing for high stakes in the old folks, and that. <laughs> And I was also trying to work out how I wanted to draw it because the original was very slick and very sharp and very designed. But I wanted to do something that was a bit not so perfect, you know? Um, and actually, I was talking to my good friend Mick McMahon and he's given me, he inspired me to, with exactly the way that I ought to draw it. So every day it inches a bit further forward. So, and I don't know what it's going to be called yet, but uh, yeah. I'm glad you're interested in it. Anyway, as you can see, I, I am enthusiastic. <laughs> um, sorry, does anyone know how much time we've got left? It finishes at 11.30, does it? I don't know, actually. Um, yeah, 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 sorry, someone had the hand up over here. Yeah. Oh, you got quite some time. Well, I mean, it t tended to be the work that I show in the autobiography, the stuff done for advertisers, where you work, uh, done for commercials, where, where you, you're given a very tight brief, and then the work is looked over by half a dozen people at the agency, all of whom have to make a comment, because that's what they're employed for. And there was one particular thing, it was a Green Cross code man who was played by Dave Prowse. He's a Bristolian, isn't he, Dave Prowse, I think, I'm not sure. But, um, so it was, I drew Dave Prowse, Green Cross code man, with two children telling him how to cross the road. And in the rough that I'd been given, in a couple of the pictures, the children were holding hands, and in a couple of the others, they weren't holding hands. So I did them holding hands and said, is it your intention that they're holding hands or not? And it came back, uh, yeah, they're, they're holding hands. So I went ahead, inked everything in, coloured it in, sent in the finished artwork, and then he came back and said, no, actually, I think it'd be better if we had it the other way. So I then had to practically redraw the whole thing, I had to recolour it. And, it and, I, and then another time I ended up at nine o'clock on a Monday morning with a guy from the agency around my house looking over my shoulder as I tried to make the car that I was painting look more glossy. And he said, yeah, it's all right, but it's got to be more glossy, make it more... And it, uh, someone with no idea of how you'd even go about making the thing look glossy anyway. And I just, I thought, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend any time on this if it wasn't for the money. And quite frankly, I don't want the money that much. So, yeah, so that's one of the things. But And life drawing, nobody cares. And it just feels liberating. And the world of comics is like that as well. I've had hardly anything I've ever drawn rejected or sent back to be changed. A couple of things, and when I was first starting off, I used to send the pencils of the artwork to DC Thompson in Scotland, and they would send it back with editorial comments, which was absolutely great, because they knew everything about storytelling in pictures. And because it was only in a pencil state, it was quite easy to change or put different details in. So it can be a good thing, but uh, I think if you ever find yourself thinking, God, I'm only doing this for the money, and I'm not even getting enough. You know, that's the mind frame. So try and get a bit of joy out of it.
big property, so I would imagine there'd be a balancing act with what you could do with Batman and what you could do with what Predator. Is it as difficult as I think it might be, or was it just they have a fight, Batman things done? <laughs> <laughs> you got it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they fight. No, I mean, when I got offered the chance to do that, I, I just thought, it's got to be a fight, and Batman's got to lose, and then he's got to win. And so it's just based around that. So it's basically the Predator comes to Gotham City. He easily outguns Batman. Batman, you think, is dead. So for the, the only slightly controversial thing is it's a three-part series. And in the middle one, you don't really even see Batman, other than he's lying in bed, gravely injured, sort of semi-conscious. And then, of course, the last page is in there with the new super-improved bat suit. And I knew that he had to beat the Predator. It couldn't have a result other than that. And I think the reader knows that as well. There's no sort of, who's going to die, who's going to die? The Predator's going to die, and Batman's going to win. Because otherwise, you know, no more Batman comics. Um, and the thing, I, I had to inject a bit of humour into it as well, because how he actually finally takes the Predator down, he grabs a baseball bat, from his, his trophy room, smacks the predator in the chops with it, and says, "I'm the Batman." <laughs> so, yeah. so no, it was quite. Easy. And surprisingly enough, despite the fact DC Comics were involved in Dark Horse Comics and the people who owned the rights to Predator, I didn't get any changes on the script or at all. So, and then they did ask me if I wanted to do a sequel to it, but then that's they fight again, Batman wins again, you know. That is pretty much the uh, writing guidelines for Mills and Boone as well. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. They kiss. <laughs> There's your sequel. Yeah. <laughs> Simon? Hey, did, uh, did you and Tom Tully ever discuss what we have next Dan Dare? Tom Tully? Yeah. When you were doing you know, the fly-off into the... Yeah, no, it, it, I mean, the thing with Dan Dare, I mean, I... I love the whole idea of Dan there, but it never really works. And we had a couple of goes at doing it. There's the one, the series that Jerry Finley Day wrote that was very Star Wars-y in its field. And I'd always wanted to sort of get more of the Dan Dare mythos into it, like, you know, the trees and the meat con and Sundar and all that sort of stuff. But Tom really was doing it, sleepwalking his way through. I mean, Tom was a terrific writer, but he knows how to keep a pot boiling, but his heart really wasn't in it. And more importantly, the readers weren't liking what was going on anyway and I sort of didn't particularly like it and I think they were doing a reshuffle and as you say, just flew off into space um, and I certainly don't think I will be drawing them again I've had, like I say, two good goes of doing it and I think that's enough Um, well, this is a bit bit obscure, really, but um, it's always difficult to, to name people like that because you, you go and miss somebody out. Or, but um, the English comic writer whose work I really, really loved was a guy called Willie Patterson who used to write um, Jeff Hawke, a newspaper strip in the Daily Express. And he wrote these wonderful stories that were full of sort of high science fiction vistas and really silly humour. And I used to marvel at these wonderful balancing acts that, that he did to make things funny, to make them deadly serious as well. Um, and in fact, I, I did envy the fact that Brian Bolland actually got to draw some Jeff Hall to help Sid Jordan, the creator. And that, that was a gig that I really envied. I thought, oh, I'd love to draw one of those scripts. So 
that's the rather obscure left-wing choice that I would make. The stuff that Fleetway used to put out in the 50s and 60s, you know, War Picture Library, Aeros Picture Library, is just some fantastic stuff in there. There's a particular artist called Gino D'Antonio, um, and it's funny because Mick McMahon, who I once shared a studio with, we both discovered we both were huge G you know, Gino fans. Like, oh, look at that, Mick, and you go, yeah, I've got it, and I've got the next issue, and you, you know. So um, he, the artwork was fantastic. The stories were often written by people who actually had fought in the Second World War, so they were very authentic. Um, but we were trying to, or I was trying to do something a bit different with Road Troop because I was I very much like the TV series Kung Fu, where David Carradine was a disgraced Shaolin monk who was wandering the Wild West, trying to stay out of trouble, trying not to use his wonderful martial powers, but always being drawn into conflict. And that was his curse, you know, that he was wandering the planet. And that's the way I sort of saw Road Trooper, that it wasn't so much, you know, eat lead and death, nought scum, as kind of, oh me, oh my, I'm doomed to this hell planet. And, I, and he couldn't even die, he would just regenerate, so it was a true long life sentence. So that was what I really liked about that. But, I mean, war is great stuff to draw, because it's full of action, it's full of machines and explosions and stuff like that. So, does that answer your question? Um, I did read a treatment of it it's quite a while ago actually um, but I've got no first hand knowledge of when, if, why, who when, I mean Duncan Jones uh, David Bowie's son he, he was in on the card to direct it um, and as far as I know that is still the case but uh, no I can't share any secrets because I ain't got any very first entry in my um, alphabetical autobiography is A for Aliens and it tells exactly what it was like. He's, he's a really funny guy Mike, he's a, he's a great bloke and I, I mean I don't know him very very well but we've hung out together a few times and he's a really amusing guy but he can be a bit of an old curmudgeon and he came over to England and I gave him the tour of my hometown and of course as always happens you say oh wouldn't it be great to do something together and we were bemoaning the fact that, or he was bemoaning the fact that he'd never done anything that was really high profile that earned him a lot of money at that point. Um, and we decided what we ought to do is do an Aliens book because that was really riding the crest of the way. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll write an Aliens story and you can draw it. And I, again, I, I had to come up with the story quite easily and sent it off to Mike. And then I didn't hear anything. And the next thing I heard was it was the most frustrating job he'd ever done. He didn't like it. I, it wasn't anything particularly wrong with my script, but why did I say I draw aliens? I don't feel like doing it. And they got Kevin Nolan, who's a wonderful draftsman, into ink it, and he didn't like what Kevin Nolan did on it. And then the book came out, and then by that time, the crest of the wave of aliens had passed. So he didn't make any royalties off it at all. 
and he was so pissed off that he went and created Hellboy. <laughs> so I, I can't take personal credit for that. But it was the fact he was so pissed off with this aliens thing that led him to do the thing out of which he's had huge success and made his fortune. So that was the best bit about working on it for Mike. Welcome. Yeah, well, it's weird because um, I, I don't know if you ever talked to me, um, but as you can tell from even this brief acquaintance, I t- talk a lot. Mike Mick doesn't talk very much at all. What he does say is well worth listening to. So we got on just fine. I talked, he listened. But I was in such awe of his draftsmanship, and he is an am- amazing draftsman, um, that I found it quite inspiring to work in a, in a room with him. But my, in my memory, all we ever did was mess around, arguing about who's going to make the coffee or who's going to wash the cups up, what we were going to listen to on the radio, you know, and mess about. And I used to sometimes try and sabotage him, and he'd do the same the other way. But what, what was really funny is he gave me, not like an inferiority complex, but because his work was so precise, and he used to say things like, once you put the line down, Dave, it's there forever, you know. And I think... And I'm much more happy-go-lucky when it comes to drawing. I'd be bashing stuff out. And I used to think, I wish I was a real artist like Mick. I wish I, you know, I wish I was more careful or I slowed down a bit or something like that. And years later, I said that to Mick. I said, you know, I really developed this thing that I wasn't a proper artist and I should draw like you. And Mick went, what? You must be mad. He said, I used to sit there thinking, God, I wish I could draw great stuff as quickly as Dave. <laughs> so it was weird, but it was good, good fun. And actually... That was where Road Trooper was created, and I drew a lot of the Doctor Who stuff. And Mick was drawing Judge Dredd, and, and it, it was—we were only there for about a year and a half, but it was really, you know, it gave us both a sort of creative lift. Yeah. Actually, I'm asking. Um, I'm, uh, we're doing an interview with Mick here tomorrow. Have you got any sneaky question you think I should ask him? Ask him about Judge Caligula and the goldfish. <laughs> <laughs> Do ask him. same as drawing I've always worked in a pretty structured way that you start with the big picture and then you eventually come to the details you know and you don't want to miss a stage so what I do is write down initially something that's quite free-flowing isn't even the shape of a story just ideas and I found this sort of if you've ever come across mind mapping where instead of doing a, a list you do sort of linked little balloons and then join and you get to a wonderful point you do that where the balloon over here actually joins up to the one right around here and then you get that little buzz of knowing that oh there's something going on here this this works this has got got life to it so i normally would do that um, and then i would do something like a short synopsis with maybe a paragraph to a page really just for my purposes but if an editor wants to see it they can see what i'm doing with the story there and then what i would do is i get a piece of lined paper and draw a line down the middle of it and 
on the left write a brief description of what's going to be in the panel and on the right write down the words that are going to be said. No attempt to get the right words or the right pictures and then see what joins up with which, which picture goes best with which words, which balloon can be moved into another panel. But generally keep it as fluid as I can for as long as I can. Um, and after you've done that, and I'd also go back and edit the dialogue because that's most important to get that right. The picture description doesn't really matter so much. But you've got to get the right words. So I would then go through and fine tune that. And then when you've done that, you've more or less got it done. You've just got to type it up, make sure it reads properly, make sure you, you're not a page short or a page long, that you know you, you haven't made any basic errors. And you're sort of more or less done. And even if I'm writing for myself, I would still do a much briefer but a picture description because it helps to anchor the whole thing. I don't want to draw it on the rough, but I just want to know kind of what's going on. That's it. And then type it out, send it in, get the money, move on to the next one. To the pump. To the pump. Or out of the pump. I don't know if it's going to be the last question or anything, but um, as a mod, madness, specials or jam? Well, if you're talking pure mod, I would say jam because the others are more kind of reggae. Scar, okay. Scar, yeah. Okay, yeah. bow the three. Your favourite band? Um, I used to like the Small Faces. The Who oh. were a bit too arty for me, but I did like the Small Faces. And I did get to see them live as well, and they were incredible. So, uh, yeah, happy days. Were you the one that did really take over the uh, the music in the studio when you were working, or...? I'm the one that did were what? you the one that did take over the music when it came to the studio or where you got strong arms? Oh no, well the thing was with McMahon, he used to like listen to the test match and they drone on and on for <laughs> weeks. So he'd listen to his test match, which secretly, I'm not a sports fan, but I quite enjoyed it as well. The bit I loved was when it rained and they couldn't play cricket. <laughs> and, the, and these old guys in the commentary box would just wing it on air just for hours and hours and hours. So I used to let Mick listen to his test match special. And then I could play whatever music I wanted for a month. <laughs> but we have pretty similar tastes anyway, so. Um, has anyone got a last, a, a last time I got over? Has joke it's not quite so funny now that the, the word watchman is going to be on the first line of my obituary but, but I, I think you know I am wedded to watchman and also as a fan the fact that with Alan I got to do something which was a landmark in the industry I'm not being immodest I'm not, but it clearly objectively was and I'm just proud to have left us sort of a dent in the world of comics so that I think that would be the answer